Uh, Psalm 19, rather, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Yes, we just sang Psalm 19. Now we are going to read from it. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your glory, Lord, is declared throughout all the heavens and all the earth. Father, we thank you so much that you did not leave us here as orphans in a cosmic guessing game as to who you are, that you've revealed yourself. So we're going to read tonight, Lord, day after day, utters speech, your very creation speaks to who you are, but not only that, Lord, your word is perfect, making the wise simple, sweeter than honey, more to be desired than gold. Lord, that's the cry of our heart this evening, Lord, that you would open up your heart to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handy work. And so everyone in the world, wherever they may be, whenever they have lived throughout human history, have had a testimony before them, of the glory of God. Milky Way galaxy, 100 billion stars, or hundreds of billions of stars, and it's only one of many, many, many galaxies declaring the handiwork of God. Verse 2 says, Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals Knowledge, meaning there is a non-stop, ongoing, never-ceasing sermon that is being preached by creation, by nature, day after day. And the sermon goes like something like this. God exists, God exists, God exists. He is glorious, he is glorious, he is glorious. Day after day, utters speech. Creation just cries out for the existence of God. Night after night reveals knowledge. And there's nowhere where their voice is not heard. So I'm really excited. The morning of August 16th, that's a Sunday morning, the Sunday morning service. We're going to have a guest speaker by the name of Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. And um, we really really want you praying about this service because he is going to be presenting that morning the scientific case for creation and the bankruptcy of evolution. 
And so we're really going to be getting the word out. We're actually going to be putting some ads out, probably putting it on the radio, doing some other things. Please be in prayer for that. Uh, the Institute for Creation Re Research, where he's going to work, is, has already said they're fully behind it. In fact, they're going to produce a lot of the slides for him. So we're excited about that. I was talking to Nathaniel this week about the, the question, does science prove the existence of God? My argument is yes, based upon this passage. It says, day unto day, utter speech, meaning it, it talks about the existence of God. Night unto night reveals knowledge. So what is the definition of science? The definition of science is knowledge gained by observation. And even a shallow observation of creation leads the reasonable man or woman to believe, conclude, that there is a creator. So, it does. Science proves the existence of God. Now, it doesn't necessarily prove what the character of God is. It doesn't prove what God's plan is for redemption. We need the word of God for that. And this psalm actually deals with both starts off about revelation that goes out just from creation alone and then moves into revelation by the word. But of course, yes, science does prove the existence of God. If there's creation, the creation must have a, crea a creator. It's a very simple scientific statement. Romans 1.20, the Apostle Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead so that they are without excuse in other words someone can't just say well i, I you know I, I never received god and i never sought god because no one ever told me about god this says no there he's clearly seen it says Although they knew God, meaning through creation, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So it talks about man suppressing the knowledge of God that pours forth from, just from nature and creation itself. God says there is no excuse. The Bible says there's no excuse for anyone. So everyone, no matter where or when they live, can see the attributes of God. Philip Brooks, the pastor who lived in the late 19th century and early 20th century, befriended Helen Keller. You know about Helen Keller. She was deaf, dumb, and blind. She could not hear, speak, or see. And most of you have probably read the book. If you're a parent of kids, you've, surely you've seen multiple uh, videos of Helen Keller, starting with cartoons and then moving on to uh, something else and then moving on to something else. There's many different versions. But there was a miraculous breakthrough early on with uh, her tutor, uh, through the work of her tutor and the sort of the light went on in her mind and she learned how to reason and think 
and to communicate through uh, an early form of braille sign uh, or braille the the language in, with the touch of the fingers and the in the hands that type of thing Phillips Bro Philip Brooks a pastor uh, came to her befriended her told her about the gospel and she responded saying and remember this is the person who's deaf dumb and blind when she heard about the gospel she says I always knew there must be a God I just didn't know what to call him and she became a Christian so we know from Romans 1 that not only by nature but by the conscience God has put eternity in the hearts of man the Bible says Anyone who has a sense looking around at the beauty of creation has to say there is a creation. Verse 4 says, Their line has gone out through the, all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The words about God exists, God exists, God exists. He is glorious, He is glorious, He is glorious. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Now the sun loses 2.5 million tons of mass every second. Which means that those who propagate evolution have a very serious problem being that they continue to make the earth older and older and older, the more complex they find out uh, the, 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 the living cell is, the more that they date it back. Now, it, it used to be a billion years old. Now it's, I don't know, 10 billion? I, yeah, it's some crazy thing. The problem with that, among many, 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 many other things, is, wait a second, now, if the sun is losing 2.5 million tons of mass every single second. So what about the sun 5 billion years ago? Well, yes, that means that the earth would have been a, mol a molten, boiling mass at the time, making evolution impossible, making life impossible. The Bible says in John 3.19, this is Jesus speaking, and this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We already re uh, read in Psalm 2 about just the inclination of man to throw off the chains of God, any accountability for God. And oh, is evolution a good excuse to do that? The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If there is a creation, certainly there is a creator. Now the psalm moves from... the infinite words 
that pour forth just from the world and nature and the sky to the infallible words of the word of God. It goes on in verse 5, say, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. This is still talking about the sun now. And rejoices like a strong man to run a trace. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. Now it goes on into the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The law, the Hebrew word there is Torah which means uh, the law. We think of the Torah as the first five books of the Old Testament. Actually, the law is the totality of all the law. And it says the law of the Lord is perfect. The same cannot be said of many of the laws on our books. Actually, there's, you may read this from time to time, just laws that remain on the books that... Uh, are crazy. There's actually one in West Virginia, a law in West Virginia, it says that it is against the law for a preacher to say a joke from the pulpit. Now, my daughter Adelaide would say, I have never violated that law. <laughs> but um, anyway, in Pennsylvania, actually in a city in northern Pennsylvania, it is against the law for a girl to call a guy after dark. In Maine, there is a law, it is against the law to whistle in your bathtub. <laughs> now, my wife would like that, that law. Because when I whistle, she goes, stop whistling. It annoys me. But um, anyway, you see all the secrets you guys learn. But uh, anyway, I haven't, so I haven't whistled in like 15 years or something like that. Anyway. <laughs> I love my wife. So all these imperfect laws all over the place, but the law of the Lord is perfect. The problem is, I am not. But the purpose of the law is to show me that I need to be converted. And that's why it says the law of the Lord is perfect, verse 7, converting the Soul. Paul says that the law is a schoolmaster to te tell me that I'm not good and that I need God. We talked about that this morning in Hebrews. The purpose of the old covenant. A covenant which we cannot, don't have the remotest chance of, of following successfully. Why did God give it to us? So we cry out for a righteousness. That's not our own. That's not our own. Turn with me for a second to Matthew chapter 5. We spent a long time, a number of years ago, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, verse 20, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And he goes on to describe what this righteousness is. And this righteousness that he describes is so hopelessly beyond what we could ever, ever attain. A righteousness where anger is the equivalent of murder. A righteousness where just lusting in my heart for another woman is adultery. A righteousness which says, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other also. A righteousness that says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Who has ever in the history of the world come even remotely close to that? Jesus himself doing here the same thing, driving people to their knees for a righteousness that is not their own. The Bible says that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. So the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. Converting the soul. Continuing on in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. Now the testimony refers to the Ten Commandments. Some of you may remember when we were in Exodus. What did they put in, actually, we're talking about this too this morning in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter uh, 8 lists these things, or 9 lists these things out. What does it say that goes in the Ark of the Covenant? There's Aaron's rod. There's some manna. What else goes in there? The Ten Commandments, which they call what? Which they call what? Come on. The testimony, that's right. So they call it the testimony. So right here, this is talking about the Ten Commandments. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You know, the simplest, most uneducated person in the face of the earth, if they have a reverence for the Ten Commandments, they're the wisest person on this earth and the most educated, brilliant person on the face of the earth. If they have no reverence, if they despise the Ten Commandments, they're but fools in the city, tragically. is filled with those kind of people. The Ten Commandments. People in the year 2009 are so down on them. You mentioned the Ten Commandments. It's like, oh, it's so rigid. Oh, man, don't say those words. They make me crinkle. And you have to wonder why. What's wrong with the Ten Commandments? Don't murder people? What's wrong with that? Don't lie? What's wrong with that? Take a day off one day a week? Don't covet your neighbor's wife? What's so bad about not swearing and taking the Lord's name in vain? 
the testimony of the Lord is sure, that word sure, stability. And the law, particularly after it's written on our hearts in the new covenant, the Bible says that part of the new covenant is God gives us the spirit and the spirit writes on our hearts the law of God. It's, it was given to us to provide us stability, order, blessing. And David declares that the testimony of the Lord is sure. So if you have the Ten Commandments in play in your life, you're wise, the Bible says. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, what are the statutes? What are the statutes? Well, if you go back into those 613 laws, the statutes are all those laws that deal with sanitation, they deal with health, they deal with what you can wear and these types of things. So you ask, well, why does it say that the statutes of the Lord rejoice the heart? Well, I'll give you one example. There's one, one of those laws, one of those 613 laws. If a man through his natural bodily function, eliminates waste? What does he have to do with it? The law actually addresses it. He's got to pick up a shovel. He's got to go outside the camp. He's got to dig a hole. And he's got to bury it. And I got to tell you, that rejoices my heart. I mean, if you've ever been in a place where that ain't so, well, <laughs> you would know. <laughs> You're not going to know. Uh, and, and so at the time, you know, this is the revelation of the Lord. And, and guess what? In the past hundred years, what have we learned about waste? The bacteria, the germs, the disease. It didn't say, doesn't say that, though. It doesn't say, take your waste out of the city and bury it because there's germs and you may get sick. It just says... Take your waste out of the city and, and bury it. You know, the, the word of the Lord is like that. It doesn't always give us the reason. But we need to simply obey the Lord, trusting that the Lord knows better than we, to, than we do. You know, as time goes on, you know, we, we do understand a lot of these things are revealed a lot of those kosher laws. Don't eat pork. Just the many diseases that can be contracted through pork and, and these types of things. The fish, it was uh, f fish that don't have scales are not kosher, so the Jews were prohibited from eating them. So what we know about many of the fish who don't have scales, for example, catfish. Catfish are scavengers. And they have a habit of, you know, through the things that they scavenge on the bottom of the, of the, um, of the ocean or, or wherever, it, they tend to pick up unhealthy stuff that's bad to eat. Oysters and shellfish, not kosher. Thank God I'm not living under the old covenant. Oh, man, that would be horrible. No lobster, no oysters. 
no clams. That would just be awful anyway. Um, but what do we know about oysters? Fish, when a lake or something is polluted, they die. Oysters become part of whatever they're, they thrive in a lake, whether, or in the ocean, whether they are, um, whether the lake is polluted or not. They become polluted themselves. That's why oysters are much more of a risk. And so it didn't say that, though, when God gave the statute. It says, just don't eat oysters. That's it. And we find out, whatever, a couple thousand years later, why that makes so much sense. The Bible says that a man in, in those statutes, among those 613, a man should not put on a woman's clothes. doesn't tell us why, but we need to obey that, and we'll learn over time, as we already have learned, the tremendous psychological upheaval for men, and we saw Cy Rogers' testimony of this, when they start feeding that part of them. And wants to dress like a woman. What happens to their life when they start feeding that part of them? And so the statutes of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. They rejoice the heart. Then it goes on. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, the commandment here, notice it, notice it says commandment singular. It doesn't say plural. It says singular. So this is referring to the Shema, the greatest of all sort of Hebrew scriptural recitations. What is that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Shema, the commandment, that is the commandment. It's, um, I believe, every single synagogue around the country, what was it, last night on the Shabbat, they begin the service uh, with that. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. And, and certainly, when someone starts doing that command, Loving the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength, it will open their eyes up. It will enlighten them. And that's what this psalm says. goes on to say, the fear of the Lord, verse 9, is clean, enduring forever. Now, this is probably referring, tied into the word of God here. In other words... The fear of the Lord is referring, referring to our attitude that we need to have towards the Scriptures. And I love this. We need to have a healthy fear when we read the Word of God. A fear not to judge it. There's nothing wrong when a, a, a new, a, someone who is investigating Christianity like the Bereans... They investigate it. They pour into it to see whether it's really true. Nothing wrong with that. But at some point, if you don't develop a 
fear of the Word of God, that when you read it, you say, whoa, my life and this Word does not line up with each other very well. If you never reach that point, you got problems in your life. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Endures forever. You know, political correctness changes year in and year out. The Word of God doesn't. The judgments, verse 9 continuing, of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the flood, for example, was a judgment. The Bible says that the judgments of the Lord are righteous altogether. And, you know, really interesting thing, and you look in the book of Revelation, and there's these crazy, crazy things going on. Fire, you know, hail and fire coming out of heaven, uh, mingled with blood. Wow. A third of the trees burned up, Revelation chapter 8. And all the green grass burned up in the time of the tribulation. A third of the sea becoming blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea dying. The rivers becoming like wormwood, like the water becoming bitter. That people, you know, were not uh, able to... Uh, to drink, the, the days becoming like night. These were all judgments that were going on at the time. Crazy locust things and scorpions biting people and just utter total calamity. And yet it says that the angels of God were rejoicing and saying that, proclaiming and declaring in heaven that the judgments of the Lord are altogether right. They're altogether true. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Still speaking, really, of the written word, because the written word is filled with the verdicts or the judgments of God. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Greg, you want to just stand up and sing that again? Where are you? Uh, you don't? Okay. You going to make me sing it up here? No, I'm not. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. How is it, Greg? Pretty good? Sweet, <laughs> sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So... The word of God is sweeter than honey. And this is just such an important principle. You know, they didn't allow honey on the sacrifices in the Old, Old Testament. Uh, 
Because honey breaks down in fire. The Word of God doesn't. And when you preach, if I get up here on Sunday mornings and Sunday night, and all I do is preach honey, sweet things, over time, when the fire comes, you guys are going to break down. going to break down. And there's an epidemic in this country of churches just, some of them too, a man, large megachurch or whatever, just going from a church that a decade ago was declaring the word of God to, well, we need to be seeker sensitive. Let's just give honey every Sunday. And what happens when that happens? When the fire comes, those people are going to be breaking down. They're going to be breaking down. Because honey doesn't, breaks down. And in fire, the word of God uh, does not. It does not. We've got to be committed to teaching the whole counsel of God. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It's just a fact. By keeping the law of God, by, by making the word of God the rule of your life, there will be such great reward in it. By them your servant is warned. What the devil wants to happen every Sunday is he wants people to be warmed, not warned. I grew up in churches where every Sunday, I became a Christian when I was 24, and I did not go to what I would call a Christian church until I was 16 or 17. And the churches I grew up with, every Sunday we were warmed by a sermon. And we'd leave feeling all warm and fuzzy. I remember just one example, and I've shared this with you before. I remember my pastor telling the story about two Chinese restaurants that were across the street from one another. And one of them started bad-mouthing the other one. And some people went over to the, to the one who was being bad-mouthed and said, hey, you know, this guy across the street is bad-mouthing you. And the guy said, oh, no, I'm sure he's not bad-mouthing me. He's such an honorable, upright man. He would never do such a thing. Word got back to the other guy who was bad-mouthing him that that's what the guy had said, so it silenced him. It shamed him into not bad-mouthing the guy anymore. Ooh, my heart was so warmed. That's what I got every Sunday. Never heard anything about being born again. Never heard anything about my need for salvation. Never heard anything about the dangers of hell. Just a sermon that warmed our hearts every Sunday. 
but honey will break down and fire. And as I go and I look back at what happened to everyone, it, you know, is one of these mainline denominations. They all, people just all falling away or just going to churches that taught the word of God. Honey breaks down in fire. And if it says here that by the word of God, verse 11, your servant is warned. I think of the book of Ezekiel and what was taught there. Ezekiel chapter 33, it says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from the territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warns the people. Then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take the warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. In other words, pastors, preachers, those who declare the word of God, if you're not warning your people, their blood's going to be on your head. Paul said to the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, he said, I am free from the blood of all men. Why? Because I, er I warned you night and day. I warned you night and day. It's been said that if a pastor only feeds and doesn't warn his congregation, he's fattening them for the kill, but if he only warns them, they will be malnourished from lack of nutrition. And I like that. It needs to be balance. The full, the full volume of the Word of God. Now, in some churches, this, this psalm, Psalm 19, is read on Christmas Day. You go into a liturgical church, a church where there's liturgy, that type of thing. They will... Uh, recite this psalm, and uh, it's unclear why, but some believe that they read this on Christmas Day because, remember, the wise men, they saw the stars, and they, they knew something was up, weren't sure what it was. Uh, the psalm begins, the heaven declare the glory of God in the firmament, speaking of the heaven, shows his handiwork. And so the wise men saw the star, they went to Jerusalem, and they saw it, it, went to Jerusalem. What did they say? We have seen the star, but uh, they're supposed to be, uh, and, and it speaks of the Messiah, but we don't know uh, where he is and what happened. Uh, they went and got the scribes, and the scribes opened the scriptures and said the, that the um, Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. So that general revelation, more was needed specific revelation was needed. But what happened with the specific revelation, it brought them to Jesus, and in a very real way, at this point, the scribes are gone, 
the general revelation is gone, and what you have is Jesus himself. In other words, if revelation, whether it's the revelation for you get from creation, or it's the specific revelation of the word of God, is not leading you to an encounter with Jesus Christ, there is a problem. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me, Lord, from secret faults. How do I know what my baggage is in my life, my hidden issues, my, the, just the wickedness that is deep and dark in some compartment in my heart that I don't really understand or even know about? The Word of God. How does a young man keep his heart clean, his way clean? The Bible says, by hiding the Word of God in his heart. The Bible says, we are washed by the water of the Word. So the Word of God is not only, don't, not only has the ability to reveal the mess in our lives, it will clean up the mess. You know, by being here this evening, I'm taking care of things just by opening up the Word of God. I'm taking care of things in my life that are blotched or blighted or whatever, and I'm being cleansed. That's what the Bible says. Verse four, uh, 13 says, uh, keep, my, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength, literally my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth be acceptable. Now, how do, can the words of my mouth be acceptable? Well, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the key in our life is not to work on our vocabulary or work on our oration or skills of oratory, whatever. It's to work on our hearts. And when my heart is changed, out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth will speak. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Psalm 20, verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. And so there's a really interesting interpretation um, of this particular psalm, that this was a psalm that the people basically recited, the first four verses, they were cited to David before he went out into battle. And then verses six um, on were how he responded. And it's a very good 
psalm to study if you're interested in being a leader. And guess what? If you're saved, God's called you to be a leader, to be an influence wherever you are. doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor uh, or a CEO of a corporation or anything like that. But you have a position of influence with the people around you. God's called you to be a leader. And this uh, psalm teaches us about what people want in a leader. So whether you're at work or parenting or on a football team, whatever, this is what's the cry of people's hearts? Well, the first is verse 1. It says, may the Lord answer you, you meaning you leader, May the Lord answer you, our leader, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. So it says, may the Lord answer you. And so people do want leaders to be prayerfully in touch with God. Your children, your wife, even your employees they really want is for you to be in touch with the Lord. Begins, may the Lord answer you. So I have a question for you. Do your kids know that you're a man or woman of prayer? Do they know that? Do your employees know that? Does your boyfriend or girlfriend, do they know that? So people want to know that you're in touch with the Lord, that you're praying to God. Number two, people also want to know that you're powerfully being touched by God. Verse two says, may the Lord send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. So people want to know that you're not only, you're with the Lord in prayer, but you're actually being touched by the power of God. You're being strengthened out of Zion. That's what that means. You're being strengthened out of Zion. Now Zion is sort of a byword for Jerusalem. Or, and it says, um, and, and, it says, may he send you help from the sanctuary. And so I'm convinced, too, that our kids want us to be in church. They may not always like to go to church, <laughs> but they want to see us in church. There's a security that is brought to your children or to whoever you are leading in your life that is brought when when. You know, you're, you're, you're in church, and you're in touch with God. I remember my father got saved when he was, I was about 17, and I came home at 5 in the morning from the prom. And there was my dad at 5 a.m. reading the Bible. It's like, wow, how bizarre is that? But I remember it just giving me, at the time, a sense of security. So these people, they're crying out to their leader here. This is what they want. They want their, their leaders to be in the sanctuary 
whether that's church or whether that's their quiet time with the Lord or whether that's just their going out and praying and fasting. They want to see them being touched by the power of God. Coming to church on Sunday nights, a lot better than the cooking channel. You're getting a lot more power than the cooking channel. So I don't, I don't get cable because if they ever got cooking channel in my home with five women, oh man, it'd be a lot of time looking at that cooking channel. It empowers you to cook. Come on, Dad. Now, that's true. They watch the cooking channel on their vacations. They get cooking in the cookbook. But you come to the sanctuary, to church, to be empowered by God. Verse 3, what is, uh, third point, what, is, what do people want in a leader? They want humility. Verse 3 says, may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifices. Now, what happens when David made burnt offerings to, you know, before all the people? What was that a statement of? Well, it was a statement of his own weakness, his own need for God. Anytime there was an offering to the Lord, it's, it's David saying, God, I need you. Man, we went through the history of the kings of Israel. What was their problem? It was pride. They never recognized their need for God. But what was always the case with those nine good kings in Judah? They recognized their need for God. May he remember all your offerings and accept all your burnt sacrifices. There is a... Uh, you know, people and their leader, they want to see, they want to see that a recognition in their lives that they need God, that they need the Lord. I need your forgiveness, Lord. I come before you, Lord, with my offerings, my sin offerings, my trespass offerings. I'm very fallible. I need you. It's that humility. It's that transparency. I believe people want their leaders to be real and transparent. Every time David went and did a burnt offering or a sin offering, he's being transparent with the people. It's like when we call people up here in our communion services uh, on Sunday, well, Sunday morning or Sunday night when we, we do it, and we say, look, if you have a sin in your life that you're hanging on to, the Bible says you should pray through it and let go of it before you have communion. Wow, people actually come up before everyone, and they're vulnerable. And I, I you know, I, I can remember times when, that, when I was out where you are and the pastor said that, I said, well, I can't go up there. Everyone will know I'm a sinner. But that's ridiculous. That's not what people need in leaders or people. I love the fact we got a, um, an email uh, from a, someone who was visiting the church. She's brand new to Boston. And basically what she said in her email is, I'm not doing well at all here. I'm from a long place away. I'm here for six weeks. I'm really having trouble adjusting. I need help from the church. And I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, that is such a godly attitude. That's like godliness through and through. To just 
recognized before the family of God. Right to, and just being vulnerable. And I was so blessed also because she was so blessed um, by a number of the folks in, in, in the church who reached out to her. But that was literally, there was leadership. There was leadership to me to see this thing. <laughs> she was leading me by just looking at that example in her life to be vulnerable. Number four, people want to know that in practical ways, leaders are being touched by God with a vision. And that they're touched, that they're, their leaders have a vision. Verse 4, may he, the Lord, grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. Fulfill all your purpose or fulfill your, the vision or the counsel on your heart, the counsel that you have for the nation. The Bible says that without vision, the people perish. Literally, that means without vision, the people run nakedly. People want to know that their leaders have vision. Joshua chapter 1, three times the Lord came to Joshua and said, Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Three times. And at the end of that chapter, the people came to him and says, you know, we'll follow you, Joshua, just as we did Moses, only be strong and courageous. People want a strong and courageous leader with a vision. Our workers who report to us or our children, anyone who has over whose life we have influence. They want to see that vision. And people wanted to know that David was in touch with the Lord, that he had a, a vision. Verse 5 says, We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, verse 6, again, one interpretation. I think it's an intriguing one here. Is David responding, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with a saving strength of his hand, his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. So before the battle has even been won, David here is declaring victory. Declaring victory here. Verse 8, he says, They have bowed down and fallen, and we have risen and, and, and stood upright. And so he says here, some trust in chariots and some in horses, and Deuteronomy 17, we've discussed this many times if we, on Sunday nights. Kings were specifically told not to multiply horses, not to multiply women, and not to multiply gold. Why? Because if they did, I think I got those three right. If I didn't, someone shout out. But if they, if they the reason that was prohibited in Deuteronomy 7, 17 is because 
if a king did those things, he wouldn't be trusting in the Lord. He would be trusting in his army. And that's why Gideon's army went from like 30,000 to 300. And, he's, and David is just recognizing that very thing here. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know, last week we were studying that glorious, um, those glorious verses in Psalm 18 where the psalmist says, I will love you, O Lord, my my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. And this really prompted me all week to pray to the Lord, God, in what areas of my life am I not trusting you? Just all week, that's what I've been asking God. How am I not trusting you? Please show me that. Where? How am I... In what area of my life am I trusting in horses or chariots? Now what we talked about last week, we're not trusting in the Lord. We're not going to be seeing the hand of the Lord in our life. So many people complain so often, oh, I just don't see the hand of the Lord in my life. Why? They're not trusting Him. They're doing all the Lord's work for Him. And so in verse 8, he receives this victory by faith they have bowed down and fallen but we have risen and stand upright so he receives the victory before he just receives it by faith before he even fights it i think it's mark 11 where jesus says if you pray and believe you have received then you will be given and there is a place for just receiving the victory before the victory is even won. In John chapter 4, remember the man who went to Jesus and he approached uh, Jesus there in Galilee. He had traveled for, I think, from, was it Cana? For three and a half hours. And he said, my son is sick to the point of death. And it says that Jesus looked at the man and heard his heart and says, go your way, you're your son is healed, and the man went his way. But then really interestingly, it says that when the man woke up the next day, he went back, and his servants came out to greet him and said, your son is whole, he's, he's healed. And the guy said, well, what time was it when he was healed? And they told him the time, and the man knew at that very time, it was that very hour. But the man had believed Jesus. When Jesus told him, your son is healed. He believed him. And how do we know he believed him? Because he stuck around. And he didn't go home that night. He waited till the next day. He went out and did his business, whatever. I forgot where it was. Capernaum, Cana. And then he went back the next day. And so, um, believing. And it's a wonderful, glorious thing as we're trusting in the Lord. And not in our chariots, not in our horses. But oftentimes, God will just give us the complete 100% conviction of victory in our lives. Some trust in chariots, some in uh, horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright 
Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. So a wonderful, wonderful psalm. We will close there this evening. In 15 minutes, we'll be back here praying. If you'd like to join us for prayer, tonight I'd like to begin praying for this uh, Sunday morning service we're going to have in August. A lot of warfare, I'm sure, just around that, uh, this presentation by Nathaniel about the science of creation, the science backing up creation and the flaws of evolution. Let's pray for him, pray for the presentation, pray that the Lord would use this. Let's also pray for Sue. She left this week. She's now ministering to the orphans in Haiti. Let's pray for her. And why don't we pray for the Boston Rescue Mission. The we pray every Sunday night for some of the ministries that we uh, support. Let's pray for the Boston Rescue Mission. It's a rescue mission for the homeless right here in Boston. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you. Again, Lord, that day after day, utter speech, night after unto night, reveals knowledge of you, Lord. But you didn't leave us just with that general revelation, you gave us your word, that specific revelation of who you are. We thank you so much for that. Father, we want to go out this week. We want to be leaders in whatever forum we're at, Lord, at work, leaders, one who people, men and women, and children who rely on prayer, men and women who are touched by God, men and women who recognize their need and are vulnerable before you. And we're just touched by you. We pray that for this week, Lord, for all of us, Lord. Father, we love you. We need you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. God bless you. You are dismissed.